have changed everything as we know it. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, October 1st, 2023. Why is that date important, Chris? Come on, you should know this one. Yes, Penrith won their third NRL Premiership. They're the first club to do it in the modern era. You knew that right, Chris? They're going to go for four, right? You were an eyewitness. Oh, okay, we'll get to that later. What about this date? Uh, September 24th, 1993. Does anyone know why that date's important? No, I'm not that young. September 20, uh, 24th of September, 1993. I'll give you a clue. And the winner is Sydney got announced to host the 2000 Olympics. It was a joyous moment for us as a country, right? Everyone everywhere went, yeah! I probably think that was because you weren't around at that stage. Yeah. All right, okay, okay. The 9th of November, uh, 1989. Why is that date a date that changed the course of history for people? No, not the internet. No, that would have been a good one. I should have done that one. It was the fall of the Berlin Wall. Okay, I'll make it a little bit easier for you. The 20th of July, 1969. First man on the moon. Good work. Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. All right. August 1919. It was the first regular international flight from London, England to Paris, France. That service began in 1919. Look, there have been heaps of other events that we could talk about that have changed people's understanding of the world. Um, I probably should have said the 2nd of June, 1980, right? The year that I was born. That's changed my world completely. But for me, one of the most important events that happened happened on the 3rd of April, 33 AD, a date that scholars believe was the date that Jesus was crucified. It's a date in human history that I strongly believe changed everything for us. It changed how we relate to God. Now, we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke. And Luke has a lot of commonality with the other synoptic Gospels. But yet Luke is presented in a a unique way. He gives us a different and slightly unique portrait of Jesus. Actually, they reckon that nearly a third of the stories in Luke, in the whole gospel, only a core, a core, that's a hotel, let's try that again, occur only in his gospel. For instance, the, the narrative of Jesus' birth and infancy, that's in Luke. The parable of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, that's Luke. Post-resurrection appearances of Jesus 
including his ascension. That's Luke. And in Luke's gospel, Luke shows particular interest in in female characters. The the women play a, a central part in the story. And he also highlights the problem with wealth and materialism. Luke uses the motifs of meals and food. He talks about prayer and the Holy Spirit. And he does this because, well, there's a second chapter to Luke. There's a second book. Luke goes with Acts. They're a pair. It's the start of the mission and seeing the birth of the mission. As such, Luke displays Jesus in a distinctive way, particularly in these concluding chapters of the Passion, that final week of Jesus' life. In the Passion narrative, like all the others, Luke covers the, the Last Supper that last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. He goes a little bit further and talks about the betrayal of Jesus and how Peter will deny him. He covers the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. That moment when Pilate sentenced Jesus to death And as we have just read, his crucifixion alongside two others. The passage and Luke will go on to talk about how he is buried in a tomb owned by a guy called Joseph of Arimathea. But Luke's passion narrative also has some very distinct and unique things. Did you know that in Luke's gospel... Luke adds a second cup to that communion meal, that last supper. There's one cup, bread, followed by cup two. And not only does he predict the betrayal by Judas, he also says it'll be one of his disciples. In Luke, he talks about how at the last supper, the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. Now, if you look at Mark, he puts that much earlier in the narrative. We talked about how how the disciples were so, like, didn't get what was happening. Jesus' last meal, and they're arguing about who is the greatest. I'll tell you who the greatest is, the one who picks up the check at the end of the meal. Hint, hint, no. (laughs) No. But even in this last moments at that table, Jesus includes Peter's denial there and then. It's not only that Judas will betray him, but it's also that Peter will deny him. And in Luke, we have this really cryptic saying um, that the disciples make about having two swords. And we noted that a few weeks ago, right? That that's only found in Luke. But like Mark, Luke misses out on some of this final week stuff, that arrest of Jesus. There's no mention of the Garden of Gethsemane. Instead, we have Jesus praying somewhere in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives. 
And why all four Gospels portray a disciple, sorry, hacking off the ear of a slave, a slave that belonged to the high priest, only Luke, only in Luke do we see Jesus heal that person. In Mark's Gospel and in Luke's, there's the juxtaposition, the trial of Jesus with Peter avoiding Luke reverses the sequence, telling the story of Peter's denial first, locating the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin that next morning. Unlike Mark's Gospel, Mark has the trial at night. I wonder if Luke does that, has Peter deny who Jesus is so that we might, well put ourselves in his place and again like mark jesus is tried before pilate but only in luke do we see jesus also questioned by herod antipas the one who sends jesus back to pilate for jesus to be finally sentenced to death and it's interesting because Luke portrays Pilate proclaiming that Jesus is innocent, not just once, not twice, but three times. Luke admits the mockery of Jesus by the Roman soldiers, the, the bit about including dressing Jesus up in a kingly cloak and placing a crown of a thorn on his heads, like we see in Mark's Gospel. While Jesus is all led away to the place of crucifixion outside the city walls of Jerusalem, only in Luke do we see the words of warning to the daughters of Jerusalem, those weeping women. See, I told you, Luke focuses on the ladies. These women who were beating their chests, who were mourning and wailing, And of all the four Gospels, note that Jesus was crucified, crucified along two others. But it's only in Luke's account do we have the repentant thief. The one who turns to Jesus and says, Remember me when your kingdom comes. And it's only in Luke do we find Jesus respond with, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then we get to this cross, and Luke has some different things, some unique things that he says Jesus did up there. The first is that Jesus prays for his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Man, how amazing is that? You're being tortured and you're praying for those who are torturing you. Both Matthew and Mark include Jesus' final phrase of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Luke doesn't. Luke portrays it slightly different. 
See, he is portraying Jesus as very much in control of these events that are taking place around him on that cross. As a result, in Luke's passion narrative, he finishes with, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus is in control here. This isn't a surprise to him. In Luke's gospel, we can see that he's been working up to this point because this is the point in history where everything will change. And instead of the centurion professing Jesus is the son of God, he goes and praises God. A Roman soldier at the crucifixion starts praising God. I've heard of worshipping in some weird places, but I don't know a crucifixion would be one that I would necessarily be drawn to. And the centurion proclaims, certainly this man was innocent. Again, we have another picture of Luke showing us that Jesus died despite doing nothing wrong. And as we read these things, as we read Luke's passion narrative, we've got to start asking ourselves some really important questions. Why does Luke present Jesus so distinctively in this narrative? And what are we meant to take away from it? It's important to remember the pre-passion, those bits leading up to it in Luke's Gospel. This anticipation seems to be woven through, but it's not a good anticipation. It's an anticipation of the suffering and death of Jesus. And he would do that and die in a unique way. And through this Gospel, Luke has been portraying Jesus as King. King of a coming kingdom. In Luke's narrative, this anticipation comes very early and it comes at the very beginning of the gospel where, Gabe, where the angel announces to Mary that this baby will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will know no end. As well as Simon's prediction of a sword piercing the soul of Mary, anticipating the death of her son in this passion narrative. We even see Jesus, while being tempted in the desert, concludes with the depart from me until an opportune time. It's a look ahead at this very moment. It's the seed that is planted of a conspiracy against Jesus that comes to bear fruit in Luke 22. And finally, we, we have a description of Herod Antipas and his desire to see Jesus in Luke 9. He's been anticipating seeing Jesus for a long time and it's not until the end does he finally get to see him. Jesus is king. 
And that leads into our second thing, the passion narrative as it unfolds in Luke. It is this picture of Jesus who is in control. He knew these things would happen. He asked God that they might pass, but he was very much aware that this was what was needed. The narrative keeps being propelled forward by the prayers of Jesus. If you read Luke's Gospel, you can see that there are all these prayers that sort of foreshadow what is to come. At the Last Supper, he prays for Peter that his faith might not fail and that he would go on to strengthen his fellow disciples. Jesus encourages his disciples to pray that they might not come into a time of trial just before he does. And then there's his own prayer just before the, uh, his arrest, that prayer where he is sweating blood. Or the prayer that we looked at where Jesus asked for his executioners to be forgiven by God. And it's summed up in Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus knew what was coming, when it was coming and how it was to be. third thing I want you to see is that this passion narrative is meant to be a launching point into the second volume, the Acts of the Apostle. Not only does the passion of Jesus foreshadow what is to come for the disciples, those moments when their, their faith and their life and their confession of Christ would be put to the tests. It's a foreshadow of those moments with people like Stephen who are arrested and tried and put to death because they believe so passionately and so unshakably in what Christ has done and how he has changed history for all of us. He has changed our relationship status from it's complicated to child of God. Luke's passion and resurrection narrative anticipates something even further for us, that one day that there will come a time when the disciples of Jesus, when they're around, will be... I have no idea where I was going with that sentence. Let's try this again. But Luke's passion and resurrection narratives anticipate the post-ascension activities of the disciples of Jesus in and around Jerusalem. Luke has the disciples not necessarily running away, but hanging around. Instead, we see that Jesus actually orders them, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait here for one more thing. Wait for the promise of the Father. And that's the baptism of the Spirit. That this Spirit will be something that the disciples will take to spread the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who died. Why? Because this event changes everything. It's the good news. 
and it's the good news to be proclaimed into every corner of every nation. And what do we see the disciples do? They keep going. Thomas gets as far as India. Peter and Paul minister in corners of jails. This Messiah, the one that people have been waiting for, has come. And Luke's narrative is moving us to that point. The idea of Jesus chose his disciples, he commissioned them, he gave them out, he sent them out before they were ready. He said, learn on the job. He sent them out to there. And it's all because of what is to come, the Holy Spirit, the mission of God. The cross changed everything. It's that marker in time. But at the time, if you were standing there without knowing what was to come, you would have been going, how can this change everything? Spectators may have even thought that when Jesus made that exclamation, it is finished, he is really simply admitting defeat and that he has lost. But in reality, this side of history, it was a cry of victory. It is finished. We are no longer bound to the evil one through our sins. It's a cry of victory. And what we see here is a pattern in how the Creator deals with His creation. Paul sums it up best for us, I think, in 1 Corinthians 1.25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. At times, I think we, we come and we think about and sh- struggle with understanding how much God loves us. But all we need to do is look to the cross. And some people, it seems to be an absurdity, right? How can a horrible event be a sign of God's love for us? Again, Paul explains it in a letter that he wrote to the Jesus followers in Rome, otherwise known as the letter to the Romans. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some may dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. And this is the kicker. This is the bit that was meant to radiate Christ's love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we have this problem. We think that people love us only as long as we serve them a purpose. 
We've got to get right before you will love me completely. But what does Christ do? We are in our worst state and He died for us. Christ becomes a bridge and He builds this bridge and we now have access to God. It allows humanity, it allows you and me to find peace. It's a picture of forgiveness that God chooses to let go of the things that we have done against Him. That's a hard one, right? To forgive those who have done wrong. There are times as a parent I've had to choose to forgive uh, my children for uh, the mistakes that they have made. From breaking my favourite coffee cup. I don't know, something about that cup just made coffee taste extra, extra sweet. To, uh, to the time one of my kids, and this has just happened recently, decided to borrow one of my, uh, well, it was a Batman yo-yo. It was a very old Batman yo-yo. And he brings it back to me and it's utterly destroyed. I mean, the string, I don't know what he's done, but it's like, like, like it's like a, a dry piece of noodle. Yeah. This... The, this is an old Batman yo-yo. For those of you who don't know, I have a little bit of a Batman collection. Um, it, it sat up on my bookshelf, but he decided to borrow it and play with it and brings it back to me and it's just trashed. And part of me, even though he's my kid, like part of me goes, I just want to explode. But I love him. And they're minor things. I'll admit it. Destroying a Batman yo-yo is not going to be the end of the world, right? No, not at all, Daryl. It's a Batman yo-yo. But I don't know, like, it used to light up. Like, that's how cool it was back in the day. Doesn't matter, Daryl's still a Batman yo-yo. It's nothing. But Jesus forgives us gives us access to God. And it was a selfless act performed on behalf of all of humanity. For we were all God's enemies. That forgiveness is a free gift. It's a free gift to those who put their faith in Christ. And since we've been justified by His blood... How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled and shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5, 9 to 11. The point is this, we're not good enough. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough to earn God's attention and forgiveness. There is nothing you can do. 
most especially while we're trying all of our best tricks to rebel against him. And from the beginning of time, from when that first sin entered the world, our God created a plan to bring all of humanity back to him into relationship. And it came at his own expense. Consider how God displayed his love on the cross the price that he paid for us. Paul talks about it, that we can't separate the act from the costs. It's precious. It's the preciousness that gives it meaning. And he says from that, that we are to do something, that we're to follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children... And walk in a way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul tells the Jesus followers in Ephesus to walk in a way of love. He encourages them to look to Jesus and to know his love. If they want to love like God, then they need to practice self-sacrifice they see in Jesus. These men and women who are serving and giving up their time to go in to St. Helia's this next week. It's a gift of love, right? Thank you. Someone's with me today. It's a picture of Christ's. That love is a picture of Christ in its purest expression. I mean, to go into jail, to tell people that God still cares about them, even at their lowest. It's a reflection of the cross, right? Jesus said, no greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for a friend's. They weren't empty words. He demonstrated it on the cross. In his crucifixion, it changes everything. It's a moment in time where everything has changed. Jesus has made it possible for us to stand before God. And when we do that, we don't have our sins counted against us. Instead, we stand clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And though we might experience physical death, we no longer have to fear death itself. And it happens, all this happens through the crucifixion. Jesus conquered death once and for all. And he did it for me. He did it for you. He did it for those in St. Helia's. He did it for those across the street. He even did it for those in Singleton. He even did it for Bob. He did it that we might live and that we 
might live like Him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You. It seems weird to say, but we thank You for what You did on the cross. Lord, that while we were still enemies, You sent Your Son. You came to earth. You dwelt among us. You know the pain that we go through. Father, we pray that you would help us and remind us of how much you loved us. So, Father, we pray that we might never take it for granted, but that we might always rejoice in what you have done for us. That while we were still enemies, while we were still far off, you forgave us, you bore our sin. And Father, we pray for that day when your name is made known to all peoples everywhere. And Father, we continue to pray that you would lead us and guide us through the mission. Your mission to proclaim your death and resurrection and life everlasting. So, Father, we pray that we might take that out into our world. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.